we need to recognize that and not just feed off of what happened yesterday or 10 years ago. We want to find out what God's doing and feeding us today. I encourage everybody, look for the manna. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. It's always a joy to get together with you and to get together with some old friends. Recently, I've been looking at Joe Battaglia's Facebook page and seeing some nice posts, and I thought, you know what? I haven't talked to Joe in a while. Joe is founder and president of Renaissance Communication, a media company specializing in strategic planning for organizations and gifted communicators of the faith. Clients include Dr. Steve Brown, Key Life Radio Network. I love Steve Brown. Also, a firm film, Sony Pictures Entertainment, Pure Flix Entertainment. Joe has also authored several books, including his newest, Make America Good Again, 12.5 Biblical Principles to Unite Our Nation, Restore True Greatness, and Reshape Our Political Rhetoric. The book was just released in June, so we're going to be getting into that too today, but let's welcome Joe Battaglia to the program. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Byron. Thank you, and thank you for allowing me on the show. I don't think I've ever talked to you about being a disc jockey back in the 1970s in New Jersey. Well, no, you never did. Let's talk about it a second. What were those days like? Well, well, the reality is I really never did a lot of on-air work. I was in sales, and then I, you know, basically, make a long story short, became general manager. And I was mainly in management through my career. And then I launched my company 28 years ago. But the reality of being involved in the nation stages of the contemporary Christian music industry back in the early mid-70s, when I began in 1974, and then, you know, the talk teaching element. So my, my radio station that I was the GM of was a combination back then of great talk teaching programs like, well, back then, Chapel of the Air and Chuck Swindoll was just beginning, people like that. Um, And it was great to see all the early shows come on and then all the great Christian music that came about. And it was wonderful to be a part of that. It was all fresh and new and exciting. And and, um, and people were just thrilled that something like this was even on the air, especially when you consider it was on in New York. Yeah. Right? Right. I encountered... um, a lot of interest from people and disinterest as well. So let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the church hasn't changed a whole lot. Well, the reality is the church is never going to be the popular place. The enemy is really out to, uh, whenever there's something good, uh, he is the author of lies, and he will then counterfeit anything that is of God and that has goodness to it, that has a basis in biblical foundation, we as believers need to understand that our battle is mainly spiritual. Yes. When you really come down to it, and you know, we, we know it says that in Scripture, right? Right. All specifically, you know, that we battle not against flesh and blood, and the, the remainder of that particular verse or two. And so I always like to make sure we talk about that in my books. And I think we are seeing in our current day an amazing playing out of counterfeit everything. Yes. Right? Oh, boy. Um, And so uh, that which is good is now bad, and that which is bad is now good. You know, we now glorify the villain and vilify the glory. 
and that's the tragedy of what we see in our culture today and why we have to be prepared with the full armor of God. Yes. Especially, you know, uh, your feet shod with the gospel of peace. You know, the reality of those verses in Ephesians 6 that prepares the Christian for battle is not against flesh and blood. We understand that. And so the interesting thing about having the gospel of peace on your feet, as it says, is that we are to take that wherever we walk into, whatever situation, wherever we go. So, you know, there's just, of course, Scripture is so rich with so many different things. We could talk all day on it. Oh, it reminds me, Joe, when I was scuba diving years ago, when I lived on the island of Guam, we were missionaries, and I got certified to dive. Mm -hmm. There was one particular area I'd love to dive. When you did, you had to go underneath the water to go across this channel. When you went across the channel, you really couldn't see the top or the bottom or anything. There was no coral to look at because it was kind of deep. You had to stay on course and used your compass to navigate. I remember one time going across the channel, had my compass on hand, and I got distracted and I quit looking at the compass. And all of a sudden, I got disoriented, and I didn't know if I was up or down. I got very disoriented, and then I remembered to look back at the compass and get back on course. And when I kept my eye on the compass and continued my dive, I opened up into this beautiful reef where I was trying to head. So what God taught me through that was our compass, of course, is His Word in life. And if we get our eyes off of it, we get very disoriented. When circumstances and things come our way, they change so quickly, like we're experiencing through this pandemic. So when we take our focus off of his word as our compass and guide, we can get really disoriented and distracted. Well, absolutely. And you make a good point and, you know, a point that I do cover in the book about the moral compass that we have. We look around and we say, what in the world are they thinking? Because it just doesn't make any sense. And I make a point in one of my chapters in the book that, Um, There's a universal moral compass that God has built into the DNA of every person, right? Uh, I think we can grab that from Romans 1 and 2. And with that moral compass comes a, uh, let's say, a common sense approach to our world. And the further we stray from biblical morality, the more common sense approach to life declines. So I say that when you lose your moral compass, you lose your common sense. And I think that's why... (laughs) We see people acting and speaking in ways that just does not make any sense. Even if you're looking at it from a non-biblical standard, it's just a bunch of nonsense. But that is why we have lost our true north, which is Jesus. We have disengaged from those biblical principles that make the universe work, right? And so... um, People are acting in ways that just, again, do not make sense, and they will not make sense because they've lost common sense. I think they are inextricably tied together, your moral compass and common sense. That's a great word there, Joe. I want to back up into your life. You are first generation from an Italian immigrants. Your parents and grandparents came here from Italy. Where in Italy did they come from? Well, they're from the southern part, right in the instep, overlooking the sea. So the southernmost part of Italy, I went there about 10 years ago when my daughter was doing her study abroad in Florence. And I said, hey, we got to take a train ride, about a seven-hour train ride down to the southern tip of Italy and, and see the town that my parents were from. I still have like five cousins there from an aunt 
who never came here and who I never met before she passed away. So I had a great time. Uh, it was so funny. <laughs> you know, they modernized the town by putting um, a spigot on the water fountain uh, that runs. And the, they get their spring water from the mountain water that runs from the mountain down to uh, their little town. Uh-huh. It is the most refreshing water you've ever tasted oh. and, and tasty. Um, and so they put a spigot on there. That was the way they modernized. <laughs> so my uh, parents left uh, like 80 years ago. Wow. Anyway, it was kind of cute. My daughter was laughing the whole time. <laughs> um, you know, they, they don't speak English. All the, all the major towns in Italy, you know, like most places in Europe, you know, everybody speaks English. Um, but uh, fortunately, I'm able to remember all my Italian that I grew up with, and I was able to communicate, and it was just a fun time. So, you know, I can't imagine what it was like around the Pataglia home. You mentioned a little bit about this in your book on Sundays, such a family time. I could just smell your grandmother in the kitchen cooking this pasta and uh, the sauce. Uh, I mean, what was the sauce like, Joe? Oh, uh, well, that was my mom. <laughs> oh, it's your mom. My mom's. Yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, picks things up. But actually, my mom was even a better cook than my grandmother. <laughs> I mean, so we were very Italian, all right? So we had the chicken coop. So we had fresh eggs every morning and a chicken in every pot when we needed one. <laughs> uh, and my grandparents lived with us, so it was a very nuclear family. You know, nobody could get away with anything. Because if your parents didn't look at you in one way, your grandparents would. My grandfather looked like... Luca Brodsky and the Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a gentle heart. Yeah. You know? But these were people that worked hard, sweat hard, but loved their families. Anyway, it was wonderful. Uh, we had cousins that would just drop in because the, the thing was nobody called back then. People would just come over like it was in their little town. People would just stop in. So you don't have to make a call. It's not like you need a play date. So when I was there in, in that little town in Italy, I was in the piazza with my uh, cousin. And for those who don't know, the piazza is the central square of every little Italian town that you've seen in the Fellini movie. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and that's where people gather and talk and argue and basically act Italian. And so somebody just yelled out my name, Battaglia, that's how they would pronounce it, Venique, come here. And I said to my cousin, who's that? He said, I don't know. Let's go see. And, of course, all this is in Italian. (laughs) And so we walk over, and this lady says, come on, come on in, come on in, sit, eat. And I said, who are you? (laughs) She said, 25 years ago, I visited my friends or family in Newark, New Jersey, who brought me over to your house. No way, no way. She gave me the greatest meal. (laughs) I'll never forget it. And I said, how'd you know? I was here. She says, oh, we know everything that happens in town. <laughs> and to, and we were just laughing. Because how quaint is that? Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Right. You know, nobody locks the door. Uh, everybody's invited. You know, it just kind of takes you back. Sunday dinners were like five hours long. And particularly in the summer when we would work in the yard, we had a huge garden, 10,000 square feet, that my grandfather used to dig up with a pitchfork. And when he passed away, my dad and my uncle decided to modernize and get a rototiller. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame them. <laughs> yeah, so, so we grew up with everything non-power, you know, a push mower to cut the grass. He refused to do anything 
that had any power to it because that's the way they were used to it. And so we got a, an electric lawnmower, too, when he passed away. Anyway. Did you feel guilt for that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I had no guilt. I was very happy. <laughs> you know, uh, so it was great in the summer. We had a big grape arbor uh, that was the patio underneath it. I mean, it must have been like 20 feet long, 10 feet wide. That's where we would have our Sunday meal in the summer after working in the yard. You know, you would go to Mass, you know, my Catholic upbringing back then. Everybody, if you're Italian, you know, North Jersey, that's what you did. And then we'd come home, go work in the garden, and then Mom and my grandmother would bring out all the food, and, and you're working in the yard and sweating and just feeling great. The sun is coming down on you. And then you go sit under the grapevine, and it's always cool, always cool under that. And then just dig in and just lay out. And so there was nothing but family back then. Anybody who didn't want to eat supper with their family in my house was crazy. We used to have so many of my friends say, hey, let me come on over and have dinner with you, because we just love. So, see, the reality was the food was so good. And the atmosphere was so loving and inviting that everybody wanted that compared to where we are today. There was no way you could do anything dumb or stupid or disrespectful uh, because that certainly was, number one, not tolerated. And number two, moms were so kind, so giving, so loving, you wouldn't dare disrespect anybody. Because even if you're family couldn't do anything to you, your friends would. <laughs> what are you, crazy? They, they would smack you around. So anyway, it was an interesting culture, well, obviously, and yeah. gave me a really good insight into the mindset of the immigrant, which I then use in the book to talk about the themes of immigration. And I think the idea, if I can prolong this for a second more, because we always want to bring it back to how does this relate to who I am in Christ, What does it say in Scripture, right? The idea of understanding what an immigrant is is replete in Scripture. The Old Testament, full of the stories of those who left their country for another, from Abraham to Jacob, Joseph. Adam and Eve were the first people that immigrated to somewhere else when they were thrown out of the garden. And I make a point that the ultimate immigration story is God leaving heaven and coming to earth. And Jesus is the ultimate immigrant. And that's why I believe he refers to his followers as strangers and aliens in their own land, to make a point that heaven is the real destination because we are spiritual beings. And so he always wanted to help us understand that everybody we look at is really an alien to this world because it's not our true, ultimate place of inhabitants. Joe, this becomes so contentious, divides the church today, you know, like so many other things. But when it comes to the issue of immigration, how we look at it, and maybe we're looking at it more through our own convenience and not through the biblical lens like you're sharing right now. Yeah, and it always helps to frame everything you think and do through the lens of Scripture, right? Because everything else is confusing. So we are to be countercultural and counterintuitive. I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount was one big manifesto of counterintuitive, countercultural living. And so Jesus sheds light on the things that we often try to disregard, but he's always calling us back to his word. 
And I think we were more welcoming of immigrants than when we were more welcoming of Scripture in this nation. So the interesting thing is that the more you get away from true biblical morality and the way in which we should interact with people and befriend people, the more we get away from that, the more we see contentiousness among races, people of different everything. That's the natural inclination of man to go against everything that God has and stands for in his scripture. I try to unpack that a bit, too, in the book on how we need to understand these things, you know, with each other. Right. You know, we've just become morally blind. We have. And, and what happens is we're stumbling around everywhere, and we see that. And then I, of course, talk about the us versus them mentality that has been pervasive now in our culture, which is the politically correct movement, which is all socialist in its background. Uh, you know, people may not know that, but if you trace the history of political correctness, uh, it stems from the necessity to create an us versus them model, you know, existed in Europe so that the oppressed people who were truly oppressed with landowners and, and the, you know, they were just living in, in extreme poverty and all the kings and everybody exploited them. You know, when Marx created his work, it de- began to develop that kind of mentality that there needs to be a class that rises up against the prevailing ruling class of the time, which was, of course, dominantly white and Christian in name only, obvious. And so that's why there's such a problem against the whole white privilege issue today and against Christianity, because it originally was perceived as the enemy of the people, because it was unduly tied to the ruling classes that oppressed the poor classes. And so when that was brought over into the universities in the 1900s and the 60s with all the radical movements, it found real fertile ground. And so it just developed, and and so that's why we have such an us-versus-them mentality. The whole spirit is to drive division uh, between people, whether it was rich or poor originally, now it's black and white, or take your pick, those who are straight, those who are not straight. And so it's all about division. That is the enemy's way of creating strife and all the things that we see around us So it can take things that are intended for good, right? When you talk about all the trend today toward finding social justice, so it can take what intends to be good and it can add elements in it that will distort that and will create dissension between people so that instead of trying to work together and not disparaging each other, You now have the us versus them thing going on. And that's the tragedy of all this, that, you know, when I think of even Dr. King's I Have a Dream message, you know, when I was a kid, I thought that was pretty inspirational. And who could not agree that when he said, I have a dream that my four children would one day live in a nation that does not judge them by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character and where black boys and girls will join hands with white boys and girls as sisters and brothers. Well, that was a pastor speaking, right? And so we've kind of lost this. I mean, that's about as noble a statement as you want to say, because it's a true statement biblically. You know, we should walk with each other 
as brothers and sisters because that's the whole point. And then I talk about that, too, in, in the book, about the genius of our nation in the motto, E Pluribus Unum, from the many one, that the genius of our nation and our faith is that we're all different yet one, Yeah. not that we are all the same in one. I mean, it is often being with people different than you that allows you to know more about you than if you just hang around the same people that look like you, think like you, act like you. I learned so much, and you were a missionary. Right. You understand that. That's why you went there, to not be with people like you. I mean, that's the whole purpose of missions. And I think that's really the foundation, too, Joe, when we talk about love thy neighbor, because it doesn't define what they look like, what they do. Exactly. Just love thy neighbor. We've got a little bit of time left. Before we say goodbye, I want to also mention the culture war, of which we're deeply entrenched mm-hmm. right now as a nation, is another chapter in your book that's called The Culture War. You say America will become good again when we refuse to fight the culture war and remember who the real enemy is, which we talked about at the beginning of the show today. Otherwise, those who might really see Jesus in you will get confused about the gospel when you raise the flag higher than the cross. There's a juicy steak we can bite into. Well, I'm from New York. We've uh, identified that. I've been in media here in New York all my life. I deal with so many people who are mainstream media people who are not believers, and we really don't have an issue with each other. The reality is this. It's all perspective. It's not like you cannot stand for something. So that's not what I'm saying. Let's be very clear about that. I think as believers, we need to stand firm in what we believe, who Jesus is, how we define our role in culture, locally, nationally, We vote, we get out, we run for office, we become the salt and the light that we are supposed to be, right? And so I'm not against standing up for what we believe, but if we think that I'm going to change anybody simply by lobbing verbal grenades in a trench warfare with them, I don't think that's what Scripture ultimately says. No. I think when we keep things in order, Scripture has things in order. We have the family unit. And we are assigned, in one sense, a role that we play. It is not one of superiority to one to the other, but of having that biblical frame of reference on how we fill each other's gaps. And the same thing in culture. We need to get into the culture and salt it and light it. And you can't salt and light something by the wrong spirit. And I like to say that the spirit that I bring into any situation is the same spirit that is consumed at the other end by the person receiving it. And that's why we have to be careful that when we engage culture, that we do not bring a hateful spirit, a confrontational spirit, a spirit that does not judge. And I think a lot of what we see today is people picking up, in a sense, the spirit that we bring into the situation. So I learned long ago, my job is defined in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. After Paul issues that great statement about being a new creation in Christ, verse 17, he then gives us our job and our job descriptions. And my job is to be an ambassador. And the great thing about an ambassador is that he is not sent to fix the country he's in, but to represent the country he's from. Yes. And I'm a minister of reconciliation, which simply means that I'm to restore friendship 
between people. So something has been alienated, right? So my job is to come to represent the kingdom as a minister of reconciliation. And then in the context of that, I can run for office, I can have a national talk show, and I can stand for what is biblically, universally correct. And I trust the Holy Spirit then to enter that situation when I have the right spirit and change people's lives, bring people to Christ. And that's why I always raise the cross higher than the flag. The reality is, as Christians, our objective is to help each other become better humans, not better political allies. Joe, that is so fitly spoken. We're going to have to wrap up today's program. The book is called Make America Good Again, 12.5 Biblical Principles to Unite Our Nation, Restore True Greatness, and Reshape Our Political Rhetoric. Joe, how can we get a copy of this book? Amazon is probably the easiest. Maybe Barnes & Noble has them, but... Where else do you get books anymore? Yeah. TV, Amazon, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, if uh, folks want to know more about Joe Battaglia, what can they do? Is there a website? Yeah, JoeBattaglia.com. Also, I want to mention, you've got the Keep the Faith radio filled with contagious encouragement, now airing over 300 stations in the U.S. and Canada. You've teamed up with veteran broadcasters David Sims and John Frost to create this, and I listened to one of the podcasts. It is phenomenal. I love the energy. I love the presentation. Mm-hmm. Great job. Well, thank you. It's been fun creating that. Several million people a week listen to Keep the Faith the weekends, and then we launched a daily show from 7 to midnight that is on in a number of markets now. It's fun doing God's work when we seek Him and seek to be reinvented all the time. As God provided manna for the Israelites in the desert, He does the same thing to us today. And the fun thing is, the reason why manna could not be stored and kept for the following day is because God is beyond time. And so there was no tomorrow to God. Everything is today. So he gives you something fresh every day as your sustenance. We need to recognize that and not just feed off of what happened yesterday or 10 years ago. We want to find out what God's doing and feeding us today. I encourage everybody, look for the manna that God has for you. Well, Joe Battaglia, I feel like you've given us something fresh today. And I thank you, my dear brother, for what you do for Christ's kingdom, have done, continue to do. Thanks for joining us here on Mid-South Viewpoint. My pleasure, Byron. Thank you for all that you guys do and the Bot Network. To everybody that listens today, thank you for the privilege of your attention. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. 